Welcome to the Recon Podcast. In this episode of season three, I have the absolute pleasure of bringing back one of our favorite guests from season two, Neil, they, them. And we're going to be talking about celebrating LGBT History Month with a fetish twist, of course. Enjoy the episode. First of all, some of you may remember that Neil joined us uh, in series two of the podcast to talk about Fetish Meets Queer. So it's really lovely that we're going to have them back in a little bit to talk about LGBTQ History Month. Um, First of all, I wanted to say also, or rather second, it's already February 2023, when I know most of you are thinking about Valentine's Day. Something I haven't had to think of for a while, but now there's a change in my life that there's some man has appeared. So now I've got to be thinking about hearts and flowers and chocolates and all the other crazy things. But what's interesting is that we can actually celebrate this as a gay couple. Um, you know, as we're celebrating you know, the milestones, progresses, uh, freedoms and liberties and things that we've not had for a very long time. And, you know, if you think about what our fetish life was like, or our life in general was like 15, 20 years ago, that's because the boyfriend is a bit of a kingster. Um, you know, this was something that I don't think we would have done openly. We wouldn't have dared do it openly. And I think uh, we should be proud as a community that we can actually celebrate this. Um, One of the other things I wanted to acknowledge is, you know, that we're able to celebrate here in the UK when we know that there are many other countries that can't celebrate, uh, you know, the LGBT history at all. There are some other countries we know that celebrate Queer History Month. One of the other things is also, you know, here in the UK, we're celebrating it in February, as opposed to some other places that celebrate in October. One of the other things I wanted to touch on as well, which we will get to in this podcast, is we're also going to be celebrating not just our queer history, but also, let's not forget, our kink history. So we've got to acknowledge that we are kinksters. We are fetish people also. So we also need to be celebrating some fetish history here. I think one of the important things we should all also acknowledge in and amongst our celebrations is that there are many people in countries around the world who cannot celebrate this at all. You know, they are live in places where being gay, lesbian, queer is illegal. Some countries are still punishable by death. So the fight that we have fighting for this long time already still needs to continue. We've not got there yet. Dare I throw out the phrase that so many people say, we don't want the young people to forget that we've been fighting for their freedom for so many years, whether you've been fighting for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 50 years, um, the freedoms we can celebrate today is something that should never be taken for granted by anyone. So please reflect on these things as you decide, however it is you're celebrating LGBTQI plus history month. I want to say one of the reasons that I'm happy that we can bring Neil, our guest, back to the podcast. Not only are they, you know, a queer activist who regularly engages with various communities, you know, across the LGBTQIA plus history, celebrating all things queer, but they've also studied queer history at Goldsmiths University here in London. And to me, that makes them the ideal and absolute guest for our talk on LGBT History Month. So without further ado, 
let's welcome Neil. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm really glad that you want to have me back as a returning guest. Um, I know. <laughs> Can't get really, really. really good for, um, <laughs> Lives around the corner, see them all the time, on the podcast second time. So sometimes there are the people event. in our lives we never want to get rid of. So that's actually really a good thing. Thank you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, like a, a refresher, a reminder for those people who may have, have had the privilege of listening to you in series two. Sure. So uh, I'm Neil. Uh, I'm Lemon Meringue Pie on, on Recon. Um, I identify basically as an all-round queer. Um, so what that means is in terms of my sexuality, I identify as demisexual and androsexual. Um, and I also identify as non-binary or genderqueer, so that's why I use the pronouns they, them. Um, in terms of my background, I so I used to be a lawyer, but I now work in the charity sector. Um, and essentially, that move in the middle of that move when I was moving uh, between the sectors, I took some time out and I thought to myself, let's do something for me, um, because all of you know going through university and whatever it was all designed to go into be into law so i went let's do something for me and i saw a course come up at goldsmiths uh university and thought that sounds perfect for me it was queer history now when i got into the course i found out that their version of queer history was mainly western very focused on the gay white cis male um so when i got into that course i was like okay let's let's fuck with this a little bit. Let's queer it up myself. So I started looking at, um, you know, lesbian motifs and impressionist art and queer, the queer migrant experience, as well as some of those big milestones and uh, in our history, such as uh, the HIV epidemic itself. One of the things I wanted to ask as well, you know, talking about how we celebrate it quite differently, mm. if I could just jump right out of it. Why does the UK celebrate LGBT History Month in February <laughs> instead of October? I mean, there are maybe one or two other countries in uh, across the EU that may do as well. I think I don't know where we're classed in one group, but most of everybody else celebrates it in October. Mm. So in the UK, uh, LGBT History Month really started with uh, Sue Sanders. Um, Sue Sanders has been an incredible or is an incredible activist um and, and a queer person who decided that we needed to have schools talk about our queer history you know let's think in 1988 we actually had legislation in the uk which said you can't even promote homosexuality in schools uh now this was overturned 20 years ago but that's the reason why we have LGBT History Month. The difference in terms of the months boils down to a, basically a clash of diaries. So in the UK, we have LGBT History Month in February. And a couple of years ago, we also had Black History Month. Now, whilst there's wonderful intersectionalities between those two, two communities, and we, you know, it's brilliant to explore Black queer history. It was decided, you know what, let's separate it out. Let's make sure that we can have those individual focuses. Um, and that's why we have uh, LGBT History Month in February in the UK and uh, Black History in uh, October. Now, the US does things slightly differently. Um, they have Black History Month in February. 
and LGBT History Month in October. And that's simply because National Coming Out Day in the US is in October. That explains a lot. Listeners, you've learned something new, especially if you're a UK listener. Now you know why we celebrate in February. I want to ask something very interesting. I was going through some notes and I know we talked a few bits before, but I wanted to pull out something from queer history that was very interesting. And it was also something quite personal to me. And this was the thing of Molly houses. When we're talking about how far back the history goes, let's say, I mean, UK history goes back ages and ages and ages. We'll talk about that later. But one thing that jumped out to me was Molly houses. Mm. And a few years ago, I went to see a musical, which was called Mother Claps Molly House. I don't know if any of you UK listeners know, but it was called Mother Claps Molly House. And I had a very early introduction to the word Molly as a nickname for a friend. But I didn't realize until years and years later that they called him Molly because that was their way of calling him gay, you know, a queer, a homo. Mm. And it's interesting because all these years later, we still call them Molly. Um, And it's like in a very endearing way, but it was very interesting uh, you know, where the word comes from and that it relates to Molly houses. So tell us something about Molly houses. This is something that's really interesting, especially about gay history in the UK. I mean, I, I want to actually pick it the word Molly because yes. that's really interesting that you, you you focus on that because that comes from the uh, the language, essentially, the, the gay language of of. Polari, where which combines theater speak with a little bit of Italian, a little bit of you know Mediterranean talk, and it was a way of queer people using coded language and coded words um, to to be able to talk to each other. And Molly was one of those coded words to to talk about a a person who um, who maybe you know gave pleasure for financial gain. Um, and essentially, that's what Molly houses were. Molly houses were houses of ill repute, houses of um, where where men, boys could go and have fun and, and have sex with each other, often under the under the auspices of, of prostitution. something tight and shiny for a special event want ideas for your next session at regulation we're stocking thousands of products including leather rubber toys electro restraints and playroom furniture now shipping worldwide or get free uk shipping when you spend over 25 pounds visit our london store or shop online at regulation.co.uk Regulation kink delivered. So uh, the other thing I just want to pick up on when we're talking about words is actually the origins of the word fetish itself. Um, So when you look at the origins of it, it actually comes from the French or the the Portuguese uh, fetichu, which is um, basically a a way of of looking at magic, of, of... the supernatural. And the the reason that becomes important is because when we start to see the first use of the word magic, we see it in colonialist history 
basically a load of white folk going out to um, West Africa in the 16th and 17th century and seeing practices that they were not familiar with, particularly religious practices, and calling it a fetish because they were worshipping inanimate objects. And I fast forward into the the the, um, the Victorian era in the, in the 19th and 20th centuries, fetish then starts to become linked to the sexual you're using items that were uh non-human items such as articles of clothing and saying why is this being used for fetish why is this being used for sexual pleasure and again others them it makes them different uh and that's when we start to see sexologists use it um very much as a way of of singling out and making things different to the heteronormative patriarchal society that was existent at the time and still it's. I think there are so many things about when we think about now jumping over to uh, fetish history. So mm. if we're like celebrating some fetish history, I think it goes back quite a long way. And I managed to just of pull up a few points where I'm sure people can see. I mean, uh, I mentioned before, you know, my my granny would have said, you know, well, people were doing these things from the time that God was a boy. And from some of the things I pulled up, a lot of this was happening even before God was a boy. Mm. Um, but going back to a few bits, some examples of when we saw or when we could uh, see fetish in history. Um, we look at people like uh, the Emperor Caligula, you know, and the yeah. crazy parties he did, um, the crazy sex orgies. And he had this obsession with uh, with cake and feeding cake. You know, we all know. The <laughs> I mean, with good the- reason. We, we all well, love cake. I mean, we all love a bit of cake. <laughs> I know I certainly do. And I mean, both kinds of cake. I'm going oh, my God. I'm, and I eat both kinds of cake as well. <laughs> yes, I love cake. I love eating cake. That kind of cake, too. Um, you know, we also have like the Marquis de Sade. We know that there were scenes of group sex and sometimes often very kinky, you know, that was frequently depicted on, you know, pottery um, that was made by, you know, the Greeks or the Romans. We all know, especially when it comes to fetish, one of the most famous, Prince Albert, you know, the story of him around in his tight trousers where you could potentially make out the line of his, you know, <laughs> the, the piercing around his cock. Um, so Allegedly. you may not know that that's... <laughs> Some of you may not know that, that where, that's where it's come from, but allegedly you could. Uh, the things like spanking, you know, there is evidence of uh, depictions of spanking, you know, male and male spanking for sexual pleasure being found in cave paintings. And of course, famously, we all know that Freud did a very big study, um, you know, on fetish and especially spanking, the gratification thereof. And I mean... The good book itself talks about sodomy and ungodly acts that people got up to. So I think we can all agree that fetish goes back historically a really long way. But I think there have also been some successes when it comes to fetish um, that we could also celebrate if we're thinking about celebrating the history of it. When we think about things like fetish and the law, you know, what's legal, what's not legal. I think we've had a lot of gains, but we've also gone back quite a bit. You know, in series one of the podcast, we had um, a lawyer, Miles Jackman, on to talk about uh, BDSM and the law. Neil, as a lawyer, <laughs> that may be something you can touch on. 
Yeah, gosh, you've covered so much ground there. I'm like, where on earth do I start? There's there's a hundred one things that I wanted to talk about. But okay, I won't okay. talk for the next 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, let's start with the law. The I mean the big the big case when it comes to fetish um in the UK is Operation Spanner. Um so that's what Miles w- w- was talking about in that episode. But that's essentially where the police uh, sending a VHS tape that somebody had left in their recorder um, when they dropped it into the repair shop. They uh, they find this tape and they, they wanted to investigate queer men, essentially. So these were men who were meeting up in the late 70s and 80s to participate in sadomasochistic sex in a group environment and record it and share those videos amongst themselves. But the police in their esteemed wisdom in a context of of fear around HIV particularly, um, they decided that this was something they needed to investigate. And as a result, we see a number of men um, being arrested and criminalized for engaging in SM sex. Um now eventually the, you know the, this this law was uh when it came out our turn. So eventually when this judgment came out, uh we had five thousand people march in central London in protest at it. Um which is just an amazing thing to think about, you know, particularly now when we're considering having these debates, I, I don't even know why we have these debates as to whether or not kink even deserves a place at Pride. I think the debates continue on, you know, where kink belongs. One of the things that we're seeing very frequently in not just here in the UK, but, you know, we are losing our kink spaces. We're losing mm-hmm. our safe kink spaces. So I think the need for the debate has got to continue you know, yeah. even though we have some freedoms and liberties in some other countries, they have it fairly easier than we do. Others, they have it, you know, a lot worse off. You can't mix self, sex and alcohol uh, in certain mm-hmm. places. And that's also for a good reason. But one of the things we're realizing, especially when it comes to fetish and kink and why we need to have the discussion, it seems like we're going backwards. The discussions now about whether or not, <clears throat> you know, consenting adults should be able to gather in a place with other like-minded people, get their kid off (laughs) and have some good kinky sex. And now that is being debated once again, you know, you would have thought we would have, we would have won this ride, you know, years ago, but it has come up again. This is why queer history is so important because understanding where we have come from, we, that can allow us to understand our present and then facilitate this, these types of discussions going forward. And we actually, what we're you're talking about there is this um, reintroduction, I'm going to say, of a morality that existed in history, particularly Victorian history, where we see men engaging in sodomy being uh, moralized. This is, is you don't do this. This is not procreative sex. So we just don't go there. And essentially, what we're now seeing is is that being mirrored within our own societies and our own communities, where we say actually this doesn't fit into what we think queer sex should be. Um, 
I think it's important that we we not only recognize fetish and kink, but it's history and understand where we've come from. In your notes, one of the things you wrote, which I think is really important here, you know, the elephant in the room when it comes to this is judgment. Of course. Of course. Talk to us about that. Tell me um, about it. <laughs> listen, when we... Who's judging you for having bum sex? Everyone. Everyone's judging you. Because <laughs> if they're not judging you for having it, they're judging you before doing it why you're doing it and when you look at the history you know we we are we're talking about um realization here we're talking about people turning around in, in victorian area and and even before that and saying this isn't the way you should do it um even when we look at uh, different types of of sex that is maybe outside that the the, the normal as we would consider it particularly in indigenous communities um, such as we see in the Kama Sutra, people will turn right and say, actually, that's not what you should be doing. You shouldn't be doing that. And then uh, you should be doing it in this way. And that was a lot. A lot of that came down to missionaries going out and saying, this is how you procreate. Naturally, homosexuality was outside of all of that. Here's another question. One way that we also celebrate uh, LGBT history is later on in the year that most people do in the summer months during Pride Festival. And I think these Pride Festivals are an incredible way for us to also Mm. celebrate. And I think what's really interesting now when we think about it, there are so many other countries who, I'll say it again, have not stopped fighting the fight, you know, and it's beginning with small little marches like it did, you know, with the Stonewall protest and the Stonewall riots 50 years ago. And we see it happening across a lot of other countries, especially Eastern Europe countries uh, and further afield that, you know, they're also fighting still for the right to come out and to be themselves uh, publicly. And I think it's one of the things that, you know, that always comes up when we start talking about who we are as LGBT people and why we celebrate, why we come out and why we march. You know, I sometimes think people forget that it is a march. It goes back to the time of protesting. So the fighting for these freedoms and things which we are celebrating, I say in quotes, you know, this month. Why? Why do we not think about marching anymore? Why has it become a party, not a march? Wow. Why has it become a party, not a march? Well, I think you need to work. Can I get political thing? on this? Because that's essentially a lot of politics for me. You can, you can um, get political. I mean, for some people, you know, the march is a party. That's the way that yeah. they, they're celebrating. So they celebrate in a very lively way, let's say, that some people might say. So for me, like this is a this is what basically the good gays and the bad gays. Um to put it in a very basic term. So this is where you have um the gays who have assimilated, who have become heteronormative, homonormative, if you will, who have, you know, for want of a better word, become the Stepford Fag, engaged in same-sex marriage have got the kids don't talk about um sex don't you know poke that bear not that bear because they might want to be poked um but that's the ones that 
are acceptable, the acceptable face. And that's why it becomes a party. It's no longer a fight because it's it's seen as you have achieved equality. Now, the bad gays, the gays that like to fuck around and the gays that are not... Um, not concerned about talking about it or talking, you know, or expressing their kink, you know, the other men, the puppies, all of that there. They're the ones that are bucking that norm that are saying, hang on a minute. It's not about being the same as our heterosexual counterparts. It's about standing up, being different and celebrating that difference and looking towards liberation. Um, in fact, one of my queer heroes, and I <laughs> just to, to to facilitate this, one of my queer heroes is Julian Clary. Um, so, for those who may not know, Julian Clary is an incredibly camp comedian in the United Kingdom, who once in 1993 stood up at the UK Comedy Awards, which was held in this in this auditorium that looked like a jungle, and talked about fisting the. Uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer on uh, because it felt like Hampstead Heath. Incredibly kinky <laughs> events. Um, got a huge laugh at the time. And in fact, the laugh covered the actual punchline, which was um, talk about a red box, um, meaning, which is a reference to the Chancellor's red box in the United Kingdom, who, which he keeps all his papers in. Um, but that that hadn't been called, that had calls for him to be removed from television because of that joke, because he sexualized himself as a queer person. And that sexualization of queerness is what is challenging, not just internally in our own communities, but very much so for that heteronormative society that we exist in. So this goes back to the same point before of, you know, someone's holding up the judgy panel and, mm. you know. And we, we, we do get judgment. We get judgment um, across the board. Like one of the big areas that we got judge, judged for is not just the sex side of things, but be, because we are seen as outside of society. We are others. Um, the best example of this is when you look at the Leathermen and, and the, the motorcycle clubs, um, because they are doubly outlawed. They, you know, sort of this rebel without a cause. They are in motorcycle gangs, which post-war considered the these uh, delinquents in the United Kingdom or um, threats to the American way of life. If you're in the United States, you under McCarthyism, um, and you. But it essentially became a really homoerotic, um, homo-masculine environment where men could meet up, wasn't a bar, where they're at the same time, which, let's face it, is kind of like a recon event <laughs> with our motorbikes. Well, we've had events <laughs> with motorbikes at them. We've, we've had venues with motorbikes in them. But yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the things when you talk about that this just drags me back to something else you mentioned before and it was like a form of you know going back to leatherman being out in spaces and thinking about how we or they communicated then you know and you talk about um you know polari and i guess one form of kink polari would be something like the hanky code you know that men used um to communicate 
happened. And it was a discussion I was having with someone the other day about they thought, well, oh, the hanky code is lost now. No one uses it anymore. It doesn't mean what it used to mean. And this is also another thing, you know, in celebrating our, you know, our our milestones and our fetish history, are we celebrating that people are finding ways to communicate their kink without some of the older mm. norms they used to before or should we be celebrating bringing some of that back and reminding people that look this is the foundation of where where we started i think what you're touching on is the difficulty of recording queer history because a lot of the time we get queer history recorded through official documents and we don't necessarily see the other side of that we see the establishment side and not necessarily us as queers that side in fact um you know we do and by that i mean the personal documents the diaries all of that there um and this is why it's so fantastic that we're seeing archives um like that in bishop's gay and like the chicago leather archive which records oral histories but also those little small bits of paper that you may have written down in pencil you know Red equals fisting, yellow equals piss. You know, those are the types of things that where we can record our histories and see it in real life. And again, allow that to influence what we're doing going forward. Because when we think about us as kinksters in our communities, it used traditionally it was passed down from you go to probably with a lot of nerves, you go to your first, you know, leather bar, your first kink event and you're sort of a bundle of nerves and you get chatting to somebody and they show you the ropes hopefully quite literally um <laughs> as often that, happens as often happens but that is how our history has been passed on it's through those oral histories internally within the community that we understand ourselves and be able to take that to the future now that's changing. That is changing. You know, we see it with the the advent of the internet where people can go online. Um, there's this freedom to figure out all these different things. It's no longer, you know, brown paper bags with with maybe the copy of your leatherman's handbook in it or something like that. There it's it's more it's more open and, and you're more able to see your own history and figure out what kinks and fetishes you like. I mean it's Often, you know, people say, you know, be the history you want people to look back and read about. Is there anything about our history that you think we shouldn't leave behind for people to read about in the future? No. No, that's a really easy answer. We should have we should have our history, good and bad. Um, the reason being is it why are we if we are selecting our history we are just as bad as those historians who look back on the ancient greeks and say ignore them having sex with each other we're just you know we're moralizing and and uh, censoring ourselves and that's not great like that's not our history our history as a community is being open is being you know for god's sake the first thing we do <laughs> me and most of us is come out and it be open so yeah to censor our history i don't think so maybe that can be looked at in a different way maybe we can think about it as 
putting a more positive spin on our history rather than censoring it. I think it's a good point that you raise because uh, it was something I was involved in another panel discussion a while back on censorship, uh, you know, in the media, like censorship of especially gay content and censorship of fetish content. And mm. I think censorship by big tech, um, I don't need to name them, everybody knows who they are, but it's almost as though they are editing bits of the histories yeah. that we are recording. You know, social media is really amazing because it's allowing us to record histories in ways we probably never assumed that we would, uh, you know, 10, yeah. 15 years ago. So like one of the biggest acts of censorship came um, with Nazism. So uh, in the Weimar Republic, so that interwar period in Germany, you have this wonderful queer queerness develop um you know we see that on screen with with cabaret um and, and we see it in books with christopher isherwood but there was a person at the time a, a, a person called magnus um hirschfeld who did a hell of a lot of work in and around uh homosexual rights and uh trans uh understanding trans studies and then the nazis came along in 1936 and burnt all his books so when we hear people turn around and say there's no such thing as trans history, it's bullshit because there is trans history, but a lot of it just got burnt. And that's what censorship does. It removes not only that history, but for some, a sense of identity. So we should really think about continuing to push the boundaries i think well we know a lot of people are pushing the boundaries where they're posting things on social media <laughs> we as a brand ourselves have just been flagged and had a video banned from youtube because it flashed a bare bum in it and this is like incredible that this is something that's being censored now just a bare bum in the back and <clears throat> you know in the back shot it's it's kind of sad to think that you know once again these liberations that we have been fighting for that we are celebrating are very slowly being encroached upon. Just before we start wrapping it up, I want you to maybe can you make a suggestion to our listeners on how they should consider celebrating LGBTQ history or fetish history. What's a good way to celebrate our history? In my view, talk to people. You may not see people at the events or whatever who are able to talk, but if you are able to get into maybe online communities or that type of thing, talk to people. You have histories there that are absolutely phenomenal that you don't generally see or hear in the mainstream history of, of queer history. Um you will also have archives. So there's um, there's Tom's House and there's the Chicago Leather Archives and there's the Bishopsgate uh, Archives in the in London. Talk to them as well. They will be more than happy to show you what they have got, and that gives you an opportunity not only to see these these items that they hold, whether that be you know leather shirts, dildos, or notes between lovers. It also gives you that opportunity to to see the similarities and to see how you can relate 
speak to that. If you're listening to this podcast, I hope that you're thinking of how you are celebrating LGBT history and how you're celebrating fetish history. If you haven't thought of something yet, then the easiest thing to do, as Neil suggested, and I would have said the same, by celebrating this history, go and research your history. You know, there are these amazing places like the Bishopsgate Institute, uh, the Thomas Finland Foundation, the Leather Archives and Museum in Chicago. There are lots of online resources. There are books and other things that you can do. And I think we should never forget that the fight doesn't stop. The marching doesn't stop. And we should still continue to find ways to celebrate the gains and the wins and never let them put us in a place where we're continuing to be judged. Mm. Or put ourselves in those places as well. Yes, or put ourselves somewhere where we can be judged. Censorship is something that we seem to not be able to get away from. So when we're thinking about the history we're leaving behind and what's being recorded, we should really think about what it is we're putting online, what it is we're putting out there, what it is that we're doing, because that is what's going to be left behind. You know, we are creating the history that the kingsters of 10, 15, 20 years from now are going to be looking at, you know, what did those people do, you know, 20 years ago when they're celebrating LGBTQ, uh, QI plus and uh, Fetish History Month 20 years from now. Really have a think about the legacy that we're leaving behind. And you absolutely said it right. One of the things that we have to do is continue to talk. We have to talk and we have to share the stories and Mm. be open to you know, listening and learning and sharing our life experiences. And, and that's, that's the thing, like we will all have a different experience of fetish, a different experience of our history. Uh, so when we share this with each other, we figure out what's happening within our communities. I think we should keep this one in mind. Whatever it is you're doing to celebrate your LGBT history month, think about the legacy you're leaving behind. And another challenge I have for you, talk to you a friend about something that may be important to you from your own uh, LGBT history, from your gay story, your your history, your family, your life, a relationship or something else, you know, and think about, you know, when the pride season begins, what are you going to do? I know that there are so many people who are anti-pride. They don't go, they do other things. I'm heading down to Australia uh, in a few weeks for Sydney Mardi Gras. And it just happens that it's going to be world pride at the same time. Two different marches, not marching together, but I'm hoping that there's going to be a cross section of people who are actually going to participate in both marches, you know, through down Oxford Street and across the Sydney Harbour Bridge. We have a lot to march for. We have a lot to stand for. We have a lot to celebrate and once again you know this is another form of celebrating the milestones that we can actually have these pride events and we can have these marches and we can have these celebrations and sydney queer history at the forefront of their march so they um they have the indigenous uh and the, the first nations who who march first and then after are the 78s these are the people who took to the streets in Sydney for the first Pride March, the first Sydney uh, Mardi Gras, if if you will. And they put them at the front. That's how important queer history is. I am absolutely stoked that I'm going to be in Sydney celebrating it this year. 
and mm. make sure you get your milk crate so you can stand on that and look at the uh, <laughs> I mean I'm small but I'm not that small we'll be, everyone has I'll a milk crate there. I will be there and I will be flying the flag for the Kingsters in Sydney we will be <laughs> continuing to celebrate not just LGBTQI plus history but also fetish history Neil thank you for joining us and you know sharing such uh, amazing knowledge and hopefully we'll get you on another podcast again in the future that sounds good bye for now thank you for listening 